0: Welcome to another episode of Outliers. I'm your host, Daniel Scrivener. On Outliers, we decode what the top 1% of performers have mastered and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, I dive deep to uncover the tools, habits, and ideas that we can all apply in our own lives. And today I'm talking to Kerry Smith. Kerry is the founder of Big Ass Fans, a business that he built from the ground up and scaled for nearly 20 years before selling for $500 million in 2017. Since then, he's founded Unorthodox Ventures, where he backs extraordinary founders and helps them scale their companies faster, using all of what he learned building big-ass fans. We go deep on a bunch of interesting topics, including lessons learned scaling big-ass fans, why it's important to deeply understand the people purchasing your product, not just those enjoying it, and building lucrative businesses in unsexy markets. As you'll see, Carrie is one of a kind. For quotes, links, and notes from this episode, visit outliers.fm. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Carrie Smith. Carrie, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this interview for so long. So thank you so much for coming on Outliers.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it.
0: So I want to just start by talking about your early childhood. And if you could just share a little bit about, you know, the family you grew up in and some of the jobs you had early on while you were still in school.
1: Sure. Well, I was the eldest in a, uh, with uh, three siblings. I think that was important, or at least it was to me. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. I actually, I think I counted it upright. I went to 10 different schools by the time I had graduated uh, high school. So we, I mean, we actually moved There were some times where we moved within the year. So, I mean, I I feel so sorry for my mother, because when you get older, you go, oh, my God, I mean, that poor woman had to move every year. I mean, just to pack up a house. It's ridiculous. But the upside of that is that I think that when you as a child, when you do that, you become self-sufficient because you really don't have I mean, you have friends, but not not any friends <laughs> past a year or so. <laughs> and the downside is, and there is a downside, actually an important downside, is that because you are self-sufficient, you really don't look for advice. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't take counsel of other people. And I think that in uh, when you're running a business or starting a business, it's probably something that would have helped me an awful lot, and I just didn't do And when I was a kid, gosh, I I think the first job I ever had or the first thing I did, I was I was in fourth grade and I started selling Christmas cards uh, door to door, which was interesting. It was very to me. I can remember it because it was sort of exciting and the ability to I mean, the focus to get your almost literally get your foot in the door. And you have to think, I mean, if you're in fourth grade, everybody would let you. I don't know why the hell they didn't, but they didn't. And then to sell a premium uh, pack, it was a big deal. I mean, it was sort of cool. Beyond that, uh, for some reason, I I didn't work from until I was like 14 after that. But uh, I worked in a uh, dry cleaners, which was an interesting Interesting, very sweaty, nasty little job. But what was funny about that was I got this job, I just walked up and down the street until somebody gave me a job. <laughs> so it was a nasty job, I mean, it was hot. It was in the summer, it was hot. And I you just sweat through everything. And so finally I was so, I really was looking forward to school starting because I knew that I have the perfect excuse. I could leave the job. I say, that's it, sorry, thank you very much. But the guy that was my supervisor, and he couldn't have been, he may have been 20 years old. Uh, He said, well, that's fine, Carrie. that's no problem. But you know, you can't quit until you get a replacement in here. And like a dummy, like a dummy, it's like, oh, my God, well, okay. So I remember going to school and asking everybody, I've got this job, you can, you know, I've forgotten how much you paid. And I found somebody and I felt sort of happy and sad. I mean, you know, it's sort of like a Judas goat. I mean, you know that um, terrible. But anyway, after that, I sold shoes after school. Which, again, I, I think that uh, anytime that you're doing something like that as a child or as a young adult, it teaches you a lot about scheduling and, and about apportioning your time. And I think that's that's important. And that's when everybody else is going out goofing off you're going to work. And of course you learn a totally different vocabulary and you learn how to deal with adults. It was fascinating. And then during college, I worked various jobs as janitors and so forth. I can say that I learned a lot from being a janitor though. At one of those jobs, I worked in a hospital, a janitorial job, and I did learn how to wash bed <laughs> And what was that fascinating? like? Fascinating. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you something. You don't chew gum and wash a (laughs) bedpan, okay? because you better keep your mouth shut. And it was uninteresting as something like that sounds. The other people that were doing it were uh, intellectually underdeveloped. And it, it was for them, it was, I mean it took concentration and it was, that was interesting. I mean, it was interesting. It was, there's no such thing as a bad job. I mean, you can do a job poorly, but to be associated or being working with people that were, that, that was a high point. Well, I wouldn't say high point. Maybe it wasn't high point. <laughs> <laughs> At that point in time, maybe. <laughs> Probably wasn't. <laughs> <high point. laughs> but uh, that, it, it was interesting. It was very interesting. So So
0: before starting Big Ass Fans, you had another company that was focused on something similar called Spring Cool. Can you talk a little bit about the insight or idea you had that led to founding that and and what you learned along the way?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I learned a number of things from that experience. Uh, It it was uh, the idea came from the fact that when we were when I was a kid, we lived in places that weren't air conditioned one of the ways that we cooled and this was in the south and one of the ways we we used to keep the house cool before we ate was we sprayed water on the roof and it always it was always sort of interesting to me that how hot the water was when it came dripping off the roof Hmm. and so you move that 15 years ahead and i'm thinking i've got to get out of this uh, reinsurance gig because it's driving me crazy And we're in Dallas at the time, and I'm thinking, holy, and they were having, at that particular summer, (laughs) the temperature got up to 117 degrees in Dallas, which is kind of sort of hot. And so we hearkened back to that that way of doing things, and we devised a system, my father and I devised a system, to uh, install on industrial roofs, because there's a large exposure to the sun, obviously, on a large industrial roof and most of the facilities were not air conditioned. And so it seemed like a really inexpensive way, a relatively inexpensive way to uh, mitigate the heat within a a large space. Mm -hmm. And there were many problems with that. I learned an awful lot from that, but I did it way too long, which is just another lesson that you you gotta know when to quit. And it took me a while to learn that lesson in that particular case. But I learned an awful lot about uh, sales, which I'm not, as I said, I'm not a I may have turned into a salesman at some point, but it was the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do. But I had to. I mean, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you have to research it, study it and then explain it to your potential customers. And that's what I spent my time doing. In addition to writing a lot of articles, because at the time, because this was like in the 80s. There, there's no internet, but there are an awful lot of trade publications. And I got to know a lot of people in trade publications and I could write and I loved research. And so I, I wrote continually So anyway, we were able to sell this product, which is really strange. I mean, I mean, I think back on it, it's like, who the hell would ever do that? And who the hell let me, I mean, it had more to do with the people I was selling to than it did my skills, I think, because sure. who the hell would ever do that? Buy something? I would. I wouldn't let anybody get on my roof today on my industrial <laughs> roof. So anyway, I learned quite a bit about marketing, but I'm afraid that and sales and business. Ah, not so much about business, I don't think. But uh, I, I think I learned about two years worth of interesting things, but I learned them five times over. So <laughs> that's always a mistake, and that's something I think that I always tell people, especially kids, uh, well, it doesn't have to be a kid when they're doing something like this is set a goal and set a time frame Mm -hmm. and recognize that uh, if you get there and you haven't accomplished what you set out to, then you should probably get off and do something else because if you don't, and we see people do it, I've seen people do it all the time. And I did it myself Is you just, I mean, you just You can't give up on the idea. I mean, yeah, momentum. Yes, it's terrible. Well, I don't know if I'd call it momentum. Well, yeah, (laughs) it's like momentum. Like, you know, you jump off the 30th floor and you've got some (laughs) momentum there. I'm not not sure it's something you... momentum in the wrong direction. That's
0: right. You got it. So you, uh, clearly that did not end up being successful, but it sounds like you learned a lot in that experience. In your mind, it was that formative. Do you think that you needed that failure early on to go on and ultimately be
1: successful with big ass fans? Well, I think that I really do. and, And I think it's in some ways it's trite, but you really do learn an awful lot from failures and the other thing you get from a failure, or certainly I did, was the fear of, of completely wasting my life. Mm-hmm. And that was a much greater fear to imagine that, that you wouldn't accomplish much of anything. I, it was just more than I could bear. And what it moved me to was looking for other opportunities, because by the time that the spring cool had failed or more or less, or it was obvious it was going to fail. We never got it over a million and a half dollars a year. Which is still incredible. You got it to 000, a million and a half dollars. It's ridiculous. I can't, <laughs> ugh, I don't want to, I didn't even like to think about it. You know, if you hadn't brought it up, I would have never talked about it. <laughs> so, sorry, I did that. <laughs> but it drove me to find something else. And I think it's interesting for other people that find themselves in the situation is the what I learned from that was I learned an awful lot about industrial facilities. I learned a lot about the people and I that run industrial facilities mm-hmm. and what their problems were because I talked to them all the mm-hmm. time. I mean, for years, for a decade, and I knew what I was looking for. And based on the business that and and the the case that I was forced to make with SpringCool, which was radiant heat and heat flow and changing of phase of water and yada 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 i recognized that i needed something much much simpler that people that the customers thought they understood anyway sure and so i I, as i said i wrote a lot of articles for trade magazines and consequently i read a lot of them and i one day saw an ad for this big fan and i thought holy cow that's something pretty cool and then I promptly lost that ad and I uh, didn't know who the people were. And then fortunately they ran the second ad that it, they ever ran. That was it. That was all it was. <laughs> and I called them up and we did a deal. And part of the deal was that because they were, I mean, at the time I met them, they had been doing, they'd been in business they'd, and they were doing other businesses. This was a machine hmm. shop and they'd sold 17 fans and, They hadn't gotten paid for like 10 of them. And actually, my first association with them was just trying to get them paid, to get these people (laughs) to pay them. That didn't work either. But uh, it was obvious to me that it was a very interesting idea because I knew the space. I knew how it could be used. Mm -hmm. So we made a deal. And as I said, one of the part of the deal was that once I sold a certain number of these, that I had the right to buy the IP. Mm-hmm. And amazingly enough, I did. Uh, we were able to sell it. And I bought the IP. And buying the IP, it was obvious that uh, the whole manufacturing process needed to be changed. And mm-hmm. so it, it worked out quite well. Uh, I learned an awful lot. Manufacturing is very interesting <laughs> interesting business in general.
0: So I'm curious. So you have this experience at Springcool where you're talking with all of will initially become some of your early customers, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, at, at Big Ass yeah. Fans. And I'm sure in that process, you're learning a lot about, clearly you you felt like you probably had the wrong solution, there was something easier for them to grasp onto. But what was it when you saw that ad that made you say, that made you stop and think seriously that, that there was something interesting there?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you that I, I remember the ad, actually I saved it, because I knew immediately that it was, the answer and and when i call the guys and they were just a machine shop when i called them up i said you know if this works then you know i'll i'll take care of this for you globally and and, and these guys um, they had not been successful it, it and it was so obvious to me what it was i can remember going to the airport to get on a plane to go see him. And I thought, my God, I've got to remember all of this because this mm-hmm. is like a turning point in my life. It's like when I met my wife, when I the wife-to-be, I knew immediately, and I know this sounds dumb, but I knew right there that I was going to marry this person. I, I've never seen her before. And it was the same sort of thing with the, with the fans. And mm-hmm. it turned out that, I mean, Initially, we referred to the fan company as the HVLS fan company, high volume, low speed, because that's what they were. Very small motor, very uh, low power input, but a lot of uh, air motion. uh, And after a year or so, we changed the name to Big S Fans. And only only because our customers, when they would call us, our potential customers calling us, that uh, when we answered the phone with uh, HVLS, there'd be a pause and they'd say, are you those guys that make those big ass fans? Yeah. And it was something that we changed the name and, and we were lucky because one, it appealed to the people that we were selling to, which are Mm -hmm. maintenance directors. I mean, we were, we understood their, their sense of humor. And secondly, that there were some people, there was a part of the population that, that really took offense and that's always great because they are typically vocal and and in this case they certainly were and we got a lot of pushback but pushback is that helps marketing mm-hmm. but again the, the at the end of the day what drove the company was one the quality because we were i was fixated on quality and fixated on understanding the problems mm-hmm. that we were solving and additionally Innovating, and uh, it got to be, it got to be a thing because people, our customers, really understood uh, not only our product but the way that we went to market. Because we were very, very, we never, we did not, obviously, we were the first people doing this, and the prices could be. I mean, you know, we never, it cost what it cost, and we mm-hmm. sold it for what it cost plus. But we never tried to, we never apologized for for a high price. And we used the margins that we made on that to, one, on the R&D side, secondly, to take care of marketing, and thirdly, to make sure that the people that worked with us were, you know, well taken care of. And I think that that culture that was built up around those things was very appealing to our customers and potential customers. And uh, I think it's what made us successful.
0: So I'm curious just to know a few things about that kind of this, that founding moment or those early moments in the companies. And, and those are, you know, were fans popular in commercial spaces at that time? And then, you know, it seems like, Clearly, I don't know, just trying to read between the lines, it seems like the value proposition is it takes a very little amount of power, but it does a lot of work for you in terms of cooling your space. Do I have that right? Or what was that initial hook that really got people excited and interested in it?
1: Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you're right in the sense that it was a very low power input. But the problem was in a lot of these facilities and in the South, especially, is they're huge. I mean, they're from like fifty thousand square feet, which is a little bit more than an acre up into up to a million square feet. I mean, you know, twenty times that. And in the states, they don't air condition those spaces. And so you, and especially in the south, very, very, very uncomfortable on the interior because, Ventilation, there wasn't enough ventilation to make a difference to the temperature. They needed some sort of circulation uh, within the space because it would be much hotter on the inside of the building than it ever was on the outside. Hmm. And they naturally had fans. Uh, They had small fans. And and I learned that people fight over fans (laughs) in some of those (laughs) places. And so we were able, our selling proposition was that we could use one fan put it out of the way, nobody could touch it. It's on the ceiling. And we could cover 10, 20,000 square feet of space with a breeze. And if you've got a million square feet, I mean, you know, you need, you need 50 of these things. You don't need 500 or a thousand of these little tiny fans with fractional motors that waste an awful lot of, Energy because we replaced a third horsepower motor with a one horsepower, a two horsepower motor, but so you, they saved a lot of money on that side. But that really wasn't. We thought initially that was mm-hmm. a sales pitch, but it wasn't that so much. It was as it was being able to take care of their uh, employees because there was no way they could they could condition air condition the space. It would cost millions and millions of dollars, and the operating costs are ridiculous. And so it was a it was the solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's very important from a business perspective, because we see a lot of people that, oh, my God, I've got a solution. And we always say, oh, you got a solution. Now you got to find the problem. And that really doesn't work very well. And, and mm-hmm. I, I was lucky that having done this with Sprinkle and it failed, that I understood the problem and I understood the people that had the problems are the people that could solve the problems. I knew what the price point was that was gonna work, and now I had the solution, so it, Mm it sort of fell into place.
0: You said something really interesting when you talked about changing the name of the company. And and that was one, it sounds like you were hearing that from customers, literally customers were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, big ass fan. But then the other piece was that you knew that that was part of the humor of, you know, your customers, the people that were going to be making the decision whether to buy these or not. And it seems to me fascinating that I would guess in your space, a lot of people don't use humor, but clearly it seems very natural to you. It seems like to me that that's the start of what really became the brand. What was that origin? of the humor aspect and how important do you think it was for a product like this to have a fun, interesting, catchy, funny name wrapped around it as opposed to something really boring and bland?
1: Well, I think humor is incredibly important and I think it's important even in industrial sales and people don't make enough use of it. I think they do more now than they did when we were starting the business but i think you can look at a lot of businesses i was just thinking like progressive insurance i mean yeah uh, i mean they Del- everything are you what is the other one state farm does a lot of the insurance companies do it i guess and it's i think that i don't know if it's because i, I don't know everybody's got that itch and everybody likes it when it's when it's uh, scratched or tickled and I, it worked very well for us. And again, one of the reasons is that I knew these people. I mean, I've worked with them or i tried to work with them for years and years and years. And so I knew who they were and I knew what would appeal to them. We were able to do that. Plus, I mean, you know, I've got I think I've got a healthy sense of humor. But all of that, I was able to bring all of that together. And I think in that sense, I'm very lucky because we had the product and the sense of humor and the, the individuals that on the other side of the equation, who are your buyers who are very important and it all, it all fit. And it was interesting. I always felt like people purchased bought from us because they were, it was a good product. And we took really, well, I mean, part of our culture was taking care of our, our customers, but the other part of that was taking care of the Of the people that worked with us that interfaced with these customers and they and the customers recognize that Hmm. and it always amazes me that you could have a company that says oh you know we think we're our customers that's all we care about and then they underpay their employees and they treat them like crap i mean if you have a company that doesn't treat their employees properly then that's Hmm. a company that's not going to treat you as a customer properly it just doesn't work that way because that's your interface and if your interface is faulty it's not you know there's there's going to be nothing of value in this case for the customer you had a product and it sounds like you were
0: talking about you know it needed to be you wanted to change the manufacturing of it was that
1: what you focused
0: on first or was it more how to sell it
1: no 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 when we started we weren't this is prior to the owning the ip Mm -hmm. uh we focused on marketing because you have to tell people you have to tell them market what you've got and why they need to buy it and of course we didn't have we just had a couple of people so we had to market because we couldn't go out and sell i mean we didn't have the manpower nor the money to sell so we we basically let the customers come to us once we bought the ip obviously we had to manufacture it and then that was just uh, that was just exciting i mean anything like that's very exciting uh, because you're doing something from my point of view, I'd never done manufacturing, and I was able to bring some people together that had done it. It was just, it's amazing when you're doing that sort of thing, and I, it's, it's very possible the same thing is true about software or anything else, but certainly with manufacturing, where you imagine, you, you recognize that you can imagine anything, and there are people that can make it. I mean, actually bring it to life, and uh, it's very exciting. Now, one w- what we did do, and you may or may not know this, but we did all our manufacturing in the States, which I think is very important. Obviously, now more people are bringing it back, but we, we manufactured in the States because we had to control The quality, we felt like it was very, very important to know every single thing that uh, was going into the product and Mm -hmm. make sure that the quality was. Because at the end of the day, these things, these fans weigh like 400 pounds, the industrial ones, and you're hanging them 30 feet over somebody's head. You better be damn sure that everything is perfect. Otherwise, somebody's going to be wearing it. Well, it'd be wearing it for a short period of time. but. (laughs) But uh, so that was that was very, very important to us. But very exciting.
0: One thing I'm curious about on that manufacturing and design side is so we have one we have the one of the residential fans that you make in our house and we and we love it. And one of the reasons I chose it is it's I think fans generally aren't honestly the most visually pleasing things, but the ones you make, I think, are beautiful. Even the industrial ones have a certain quality to them and a look and feel that just feels really wonderful. So when you see it in a restaurant, it's not like, oh, don't look up. There's this Mm -hmm. ugly fan that's here just cooling this, but it's actually something that you want to look at. Was that part of what you saw back when it was being manufactured out of this machine shop? Or was that something that you brought to it as you started iterating and, and figuring out what this would become?
1: I mean a lot of the function or a lot of the form is dictated by the function and especially in the beginning it was but once we started manufacturing ourselves we wanted to make sure that it was visually pleasing even the industrial fans and of course the commercial fans we started out industrially but people i mean churches and schools and auditoriums would call us up and ask us about a fan a big fan and, and I always told them, well, this is great. I'm sure you need one, but these fans are industrial fans and they we have gearboxes and gearboxes are gears and uh, with a bunch of oil. And though they're not excessively noisy, they're certainly not quiet. And there was such insistence, again, listening to the customer, there was such insistence that we decided that we needed to build a commercial fan Mm -hmm. using um, a gearless technology magnets, uh, permanent magnet technology. And so the first commercial fan we built was, I mean, we designed the whole thing. I mean, it was supposed to be totally different. and, And I was very, very proud of that. And somewhat disappointed that nobody else thought it was that cool. It took us a year and a half to do it. And when we got done with it, it was like, yeah, I mean, the market didn't appreciate it. And huh. what was interesting, though, was we recognized that, well, you, we need something like this, but this must not be it. It was it was just too big and too, I guess, in your face. I mean, we sold a lot of them, but not anywhere near enough. And we downsized the fan. That was a 14 foot fan. We downsized this fan to 10 feet and had a much more pedestrian design. I mean, the the initial fan was very colorful, but a much more pedestrian design. But people like, holy cow, they love that thing. And I mean, you see them all the time. It's ridiculous. And it also drove us because the people ask me, like you have one in your house, and they would say, well, Carrie, why don't you make residential fans? And I always said, oh, I'm never going to do that. That's such a dumb (laughs) idea because residential fans look like crap and they're made with cheap material. They're junk. But what happened with this smaller commercial fan is people started calling up and buying it for their houses. Now, this fan Uh, It was a $3,500 fan. And then to put it in your house, it's not like you hang it on a hook because it weighs 100 pounds. A lot of people had to, I mean, they would buy a $3,500 fan and then spend $2,000 on uh, rejiggering their house so that they could actually install this fan in there in their family room and it's like somebody spending fifty five hundred dollars on a residential fan people must not like those things and that's when we recognize that oh my god maybe we should start thinking about residential fans and we found somebody in malaysia uh, who is a kiwi is a kiwi uh, new zealander uh, engineer that won a prize for a motor design and got in contact with him and together, well, we bought his company, we bought his designs, but he worked with us for, gosh, for 10 years and uh, designed a residential fan. It was at the, when we started, it was completely bamboo. I mean, we had obviously we had steel and copper and aluminum in it, but the, the foils were bamboo. I mean, completely bamboo. Most fans are just made out of cardboard, paperboard and uh, plastic. And (laughs) most fans, well, the average ceiling fan for a house cost about 150 bucks. And uh, our fan cost somewhere between 600 and $1,200. And everybody was like, there's no effing way you're going to be able to sell those things. And we sold, well, we got that part of the business from the time that we started it, It took a couple of years, but we got it up to $70 million within five years, which is, uh, I mean, for a product that, again, a totally different price point, and even now a different price point. Of course, we we had a lot of copycats. I mean, I don't think when we started, I think most ceiling fans, residential ceiling fans had five blades. And I think if you go look at it now, it's amazing because ours had three blades. How many of them have copied our uh, design. What they didn't copy because you can't see it and because people don't really understand what's going on is the technology because we had more processors in that damn little fan than, than it probably had in the first computer I ever bought Uh, because it looked at, I mean, it, Check temperature. It had a brain. It remembered what you how you programmed it. It knew what the temperature on the floor was, the temperature on the ceiling, uh, knew the humidity. I mean, and he used all these things to to operate to make sure that the operations were optimized. Because we saw this ultimately as a means to reduce. Air conditioning. I don't think that people, even when we left, when I sold the business, they certainly didn't understand what was what was going on there. And that's that was in the IoT era, and nobody ever got, or the customers never quite understood IoT, and it didn't come to fruition. I'm sure it will. Over the next ten years or so, but it certainly didn't. Ten years. Ago.
0: Yeah, we're definitely not there yet. No, not at close. With you know, hearing you tell those stories, like the commercial fan story is fascinating because it sounds like all you did was kind of maybe go a little bit more industrial or pedestrian with the design and change the diameter of it by it sounds like four feet, you know, and then to see it take off. And with the residential fan, you know, it's fascinating to me that you had the conviction. To do something really different because it takes a lot of guts not only to create something that at that point it sounds like it's what five x six x your your competitor's price point but that you you knew that it was going to be better was there a secret you derived or was there an insight you derived from those experiences of what customers were really looking for?
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's uh, again with the industrial fan. I mean, you could buy a, a small thirty inch fan for. 50 bucks. I mean for an industrial space and we're selling our fans for $5,000. And I think that the understanding was that if you made the case that people would understand if if it was fair and when I say fair I mean that it was that it solved the problem. I mean, we understood the problem as we did in the house because the ceiling fans, normally they don't work. They don't even work at all. They don't even know what the hell's going on because they, they're just cheap pieces of junk and they're made, they cost $19 a piece to make those damn mm-hmm. things or less. And they're junky and they barely move any air. And we recognized that. And we thought, I thought, That if we actually made something that worked, I mean, actually moved air in a house and we actually made it very attractive and we made it out of real material, I mean, real, not plastic, that there were plenty of people that were going to be interested in that. And, you know, even if they were, even if they weren't, at least it's something you'd be proud of. I mean, how could you be proud? I mean, seriously, nobody's proud of making some damned cardboard fan, plastic cardboard fan that doesn't even work. I mean, we used, I mean, it's not even close. I mean, I I think at some point you recognize that, that people are looking for, they're looking for value. I mean, that's, but they're really looking for something that is, that works. I mean, Mm -hmm. the downside of the economy this type of economy is you have people like Amazon where people really don't understand their Walmart. People really I think don't understand what that means because we did everything I mean we paid more to make our fans in this country than we would have paid if we made them I mean you know if you make them in China God forbid. And people didn't, uh, and maybe they appreciated that. Maybe they didn't because they were always looking for something cheap and you go, well, it's cheap, but it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it's cheaper. I was like, in and, and Amazon and Walmart, there, there's a continual drive because they're retailers. They don't care. I mean, they're only interested in margin and they're not interested in quality. And if you're going to buy it, then it's, you know, the quality is good enough. And I think people, Don't recognize when you when you descend to the level of Amazon, to buying from Amazon or Walmart, that you basically screwed the manufacturer and you forced Mm -hmm. the manufacturer to think in totally different terms. Now, the way we looked at it was you know, well, up yours, this is the way we're going to do it. It's going to be top quality. I'm not selling through Amazon or Walmart or anything like that. And if you want it, you got to pay for it because, and we could make the case. But for a lot of companies, they don't make that case. And and they get swallowed by Walmart or Amazon and and they're forced to pay attention to pennies. And that's what you get. That's what you get. You get a commodity. If you're buying from a commodity seller, you get a commodity. Yeah, I've heard you, you know, even
0: in the process of talking about, yeah, just how you iterated on those fans and, you know, you weren't, if if you tried something and it wasn't as successful as you thought it would be, you didn't scrap it. You just came back to the problem and and tried to think about what what you missed there. And I think there's something fascinating there, you know, and I've heard you describe the company as constantly in motion and just always iterating on every part of the business. Was there just a philosophy or insight that drove that? And did you have any big, surprises along the way. I mean, clearly you've talked about some of them or that commercial fan, you make a small change and things take off, but I'm just curious what drove that and how you brought that to life at the company.
1: I think some of this is, it's not like a big reveal, uh, Mm -hmm. at some point, I think that the, a company is reflects the entrepreneur or the, the entrepreneur's personality. And I think that's all it is. I I mean, I remember thinking if some, this sounds ridiculous, I suppose, (laughs) but driving through a town that if there was somebody that didn't like my product that was in that town, I just couldn't, that would be just a bad thing. I mean, I (laughs) just, I wanted everybody to like what we were doing. I wanted everybody to appreciate what we were doing. And to that end, we called everybody we sold a fan too. We called them up and not like, Hey, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, fine. Click. Uh, We called them up and asked them what they liked and what they didn't like. And the most important part of that is what they didn't like. What is it that we did wrong? And we changed all sorts of things over the life of the company from the bolts, from the way the bolts were packaged to the instructions. And I mean, we, we, we drove everything so that Typically, when we made that call and I had a lot of people making these calls and it was a big deal that people were happy. They liked it. They and if they didn't like it, which, of course, that's golden, because now you can actually work on something it's like looking in a mirror. You can actually see the problem that we could fix that and we could we could improve upon it, because that to me is a big deal, because you're asking somebody, I'm giving you a piece of material, a product. And in exchange, you're giving me money and that's a big deal. It's like you coming to work for me. I mean, yeah, I pay you, but I mean, you're giving me this part of your life Mm -hmm. and that's something that is, I think it has value. uh, And you have to, you have to appreciate that. And so the same thing is, I think the same thing is true. It wasn't a reveal. It's just the way, it's the way things ought to be. And keep in mind that, we were successful and when you're successful or when you're making money i'm talking successful as a company you have the wherewithal to do this and you can either take that money and uh, buy another house or buy a yacht or you know an airplane or some bs like that or you can put it back into the company and make sure that you're providing that everybody, I, I hate to say this, but everybody likes you. Everybody appreciates what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I see a lot of companies are a lot of people that come to us and they're fixated on their, you know, how many likes they get and people say <laughs> wonderful things about them, but they don't fixate and they don't even listen. As a matter of fact, they try to avoid talking to people, customers that don't, appreciate their product. And that to me is just a total, I mean, you know, getting a pat on the hiney is no big deal. Somebody telling you how to do your job better, that's a big deal. You should pay attention to that. You shouldn't be taken aback by that. That's something that's valuable.
0: Yeah, there's no, there's absolutely gold in that. I find it hard though, or I find it somewhat difficult because I think for the reason in my experience that a lot of people avoid that feedback is, you know, it's just part of human nature is if you read negative feedback, you inherently try to interpret it as someone saying something negative about mm-hmm. you. And so I know a lot of people just struggle with that. Were you really careful with hiring to just make sure that that you brought people on board that thought that way? Or, or how did you how did you get the right people to make that work?
1: Well, Well, I don't think you can hire. I mean, obviously you can hire the wrong people, but I think that that goes back to the culture and the way you, and it's not, you can talk about culture, but that doesn't mean anything. And you have to make it, you have to make it obvious. For example, we made mistakes when we made a mistake and we made mistakes. I mean, we, we made mistakes that were costly. I mean, we had, For example, one time we had a a problem with uh, a weld. Now, because we had a a contractor or a contract to a company to make frames, and they welded the frames together. Well, for whatever reason, they missed they on a for a certain batch, they missed the weld. And I mean, it was just if this means anything to you, it was just a they just tacked it. There's just a spot weld where (laughs) there should have been a, a a full weld. And we didn't know this until it got into the field and then we found out. And so then we had to we had to find all of those fans. We had to go out and tell the customers that, you know, something terrible has happened. Not it wasn't terrible. Nobody was hurt because we did this very quickly. But you have to tell the customer who's trusted you, hey, guess what? I screwed up, Mm -hmm. which is very, very painful. And then get out and take down all these fans. And there were hundreds of them. It cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But you have to let everybody in the company know, this is what happened. This is why it happened. This is what we did. This is why it's good. This is why you have to pay for a mistake. Because if you just go, "Eh, well, maybe nothing will happen. I mean, you know, there's more than one weld. And that's not the way you do it. You set it up. And when you make a mistake, you advertise it to your I mean, you have to tell the customers this, of course, but you have to tell all the employees and you have to tell them, this is what we're going to do. This is how we handle this sort of thing. So this cost us, you know, $300,000 to fix this. Boy, we're dumb. This is how we're going to fix it. This is what we're going to do. And we did that on every single thing where we made a mistake. We made a big deal about it. Mm -hmm. Additionally, when we made a mistake, for example, with with a, with a specific customer. I mean, you sell them something that for whatever reason doesn't, I mean, it, it breaks before it's supposed to. I mean, it, it doesn't make warranty. Or there's any sort of problem. They don't even like it. They don't like it. Whatever reason, doesn't matter. You make a big deal out of, fine. You don't like it. I don't care. Don't, you don't need a reason not to like it. We're just going to give you your money back. we we'll just call it even. And everybody knew that. Everybody knew that. You didn't have to make money that I wasn't interested in making money on every deal. It didn't matter. What was, I mean, obviously we had to make money on cumulatively or (laughs) the summation of all the deals, but on the individual, I didn't care if, well, they paid me $5,000 and it was going to cost $6,000. I don't care. It was fine. That's what happens when you make a mistake. But you, when you make a mistake, you have to realize it. you have to accept it. You have to pay the consequences and that, I think, is part of the culture. The other part of the culture is, I mean, you know, related to people making mistakes and so forth. And we were, if you want people to think outside the box, you're going to have to recognize they're going to make mistakes. But that's how I think that that was a big deal. The whole culture of the company was, was extremely important. As I mentioned before, I think that the customers recognize that too. The customers, I think, were always imagining you know, could you imagine working at Big Ass Fans? Because those guys, you know, they're cool and they treat everybody and well and they overpay them and all that happy stuff. And I think that I think that that helped us on on the obviously from the employee side and from the customer side as well. If you build something that is valuable, people appreciate it and it just increases in value. I mean, it's it's like karma, man. I mean, you know.
0: And is that idea, I'm guessing that idea probably shows up in your work today at Unorthodox Ventures. And, you know, is this something that you talk to the companies that are coming to you, the companies you choose to invest in about?
1: Yeah, I think it's very important because what the business we're in right now, and again, we're just feeling it out. We've been doing it for a couple of years now, is what we see in the market right now when people go out to raise money they give away equity. They give away their equity and they give it to people, VC firms that are manned by bankers and bankers next to lawyers are the least business-like people that walk the planet. I mean, they don't know jack about (laughs) business. And They really can't offer much advice. They'd actually offer almost no advice, but they certainly take equity. They're willing to do that and and they pay for it. But if you don't tell the entrepreneur, uh, if you don't help them use the money, I mean, if you don't, if they don't know how to use the money, and I certainly didn't when I started either business, they're going to waste it and they're going to have to go back for more money. And we see a lot of people that are in a situation where they started a business And after several rounds, they, you know, they own 10% of their own business, which I think is, I mean, that's like indentured servitude. And so what we try to do is we say, look, what we do is we'll, if we like the business and if we, I mean, if you like the sector, if we like the business, if we like the individual, then the individual is a big deal. That's a big deal because they have to be able to think that we say, okay, we're, we evaluate the market and this is how much it's going to cost to enter this market to do what you want to do to get you to a point where you're breaking even not where you're going to raise more money screw that who needs to raise more money that's just that just cost you equity and this is what it is and then we we basically help the company build that business because we've got in the firm we basically took people from the fan company the biggest fan company and we've got people that that ran the engineering department, that ran marketing, that ran sales, it opened uh, and ran offices in, in uh, foreign countries, that did the analytics, uh, that did the engineering on designing and the fans and the software and the hardware and the firmware and all of that happy stuff, is that we can help you build this business. And the deal is, I don't want any more of your equity i want we that's how we're paid we're paid in equity but if the i don't want to be the majority owner of your business that would be a mistake for us and so if we say okay this is what we're going to give you this is the help which typically goes on for the first four to six months is we actually i mean it's a it's a day-to-day on the telephone you know hand-holding scenario If we wind up, if we have 25% or 30%, that's all. That's Mm -hmm. what we want to get to. And that's so that you own 70, 75% of your business. And that would be a great thing because that means one, you're, we're good partners because we're now we're in business. Now we're making you money at some point and we can help you. I mean, we're going to hire all these people that are going to be working for you, but, but on your payroll ultimately. But then you don't have to worry about and you don't have to spend your time trying to raise money, worrying about a down round, worrying. I mean, you know, this just I mean, you can get on with with running business. Now, it's not like everybody that comes to us is even thinking about actually running a business. Some of them actually, maybe a lot of them are just trying to make money, which I think is that's all wrong. You can make money. It's just like it's the whole karma thing again. I mean, it's if you, if all you're interested in is making money, I'm pretty sure you're not going to make any. I mean, not real money. You make some money, but not real money. And you won't wind up with a business. And I think one of the reasons that, and I don't want to be a sexist here, but one of the reasons that we deal with a lot of women entrepreneurs is because they have a tendency to think that way. So we think the way they think, which is that they're interested in building a business, which is what we're interested in. And in that fashion, they're much more typically much more mature and they're more interested in actually changing a market, uh, in changing people's lives with what they're doing, which I think is I mean, that's business. I mean, that's the way you should look at these things. And mm-hmm. and so that's, that's why we, it, it always surprises me when people say, well, you know, the, there's not many women entrepreneurs. Well, there's plenty of women entrepreneurs. You just have to pay attention. And there's a lot, as I would say that in a lot of respects, they're much, much higher quality typically. Now that's not to say that we don't invest in male owned businesses, but. It's a different, it's a different, I think they have a different approach because we have a different approach to the problem. Yeah, I love
0: that. I love that line of thinking. So it sounds like you work with a, l- a lot of these are businesses that haven't yet launched that are coming to you for help launching the business. So how much of it, I guess, are how much of what you're focused on and what you're funding is companies at that super early, early stage? And how much of it is companies that are at a later stage where you're investing at a moment where you think there's a little bit of a trajectory change?
1: Well, I wouldn't say, uh, I would say that we invest early, but not that early. Hmm. I mean, I think that from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's very important for them to hit the market. I mean, the market tells you what, you know, if it doesn't like what you want and what you have, then you're it's not make any money. Yeah, no, exactly. And so you have to get it out and basically run it around the track a couple of times. And so I would say that most of the time, even though it's, Early, early to us is a couple of hundred thousand dollars in uh, revenue. Now, having said that, we we also invest in companies that have no revenue, and we've invested in a couple of uh, medical device companies, and that's, I mean, you know, that's a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, normally when we do that, we're investing in companies where ultimately they're going to, it's going to be a B to C scenario, we can see it, even though they may not have thought about it that way initially. But I think that it's very difficult. Honestly, I I think that if somebody comes to us and they say, hey, I've got this great idea. What do you think? We may think it's a great idea, but I really do think you you have to take it to the market because that tells you a lot about the entrepreneur. I mean, how did they do that? How did they react to that were they successful? How do they think about these things? You, because running a business is, I think it's very exciting. I think it's very interesting, but I think you actually have to do it and investing in just an idea that you shouldn't do that. I We don't do that. That's just a crapshoot. I mean, that really is.
0: Yeah, there's not enough data there, and yeah, I think to your point, you it's exactly right. Is you know you haven't it's not a business yet, and running a oh, business huh? is very, very challenging. And there you have you know a ton of things that are competing for your attention. You have fires you have to put out. Yeah. You have to think about long term strategy, and it's a very difficult, multi dimensional
1: game. Yeah, yeah, no, it'd be like just saying, oh, I'm going to run a marathon on Saturday, and I haven't practiced or I you know haven't trained, but I'm going to do it. I don't think so. I mean, you have to do the work. If you don't do the work, I mean, uh, do the work because the businesses that I started, you don't need, you can do a lot of things without a lot of money. I think if people can bootstrap it, I think that's the optimal way to do things. I think that, well, I shouldn't say that. That's a way to do things. The bootstrapping takes, makes it so that it takes a longer time to get a a business going. And, and I always tell people that it took me 20 years to go from zero to 500 million. If I'd had the money and I had expertise, maybe that would have only taken, I mean, when we did the residential fans, it went from zero to 70 in fewer than five years. You can do it faster if you've got money, but if you've got to know where to put it, I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. everything else. So it does compress the timeline, and in the final analysis, all you've got is time. I mean, you know, you don't live forever. And if by helping people with money and with expertise, if we can, if we can shorten that journey, and I think that's probably, defines the way we look at this type of business, this VC, this investment that makes us different because I really don't give a flying flip whether I make any money more money or not. I just don't care. And I think that I think that that's another difference because it's not a fund. It's just our money. But I also think that, I mean, you know, you're doing something helping people.
0: So I want to move on and ask a couple of closing questions. Mm -hmm. And one is, you know, so you have, I think, a really just singular, really refreshing point of view that's very different today on how to build a business, how to think about that, how you should approach it. So one thing I'm curious is, you know, is there a book that you love that you give out to entrepreneurs or the people that you work with or that you point people towards or, or maybe even a few books?
1: Well, not business books. I don't suggest reading business books. I There is one uh, that I've uh, suggested to people, which is, uh, I think the name of it is Blue Oceans. And it's just because at all it basically, the point of the book is that That what you should look for and whatever you answer, this sounds terrible, I suppose, or maybe, maybe not. That what you're really looking for uh, when you start a business is you're looking for a monopoly. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you're the only person that's providing your product. But if you're you can provide a product that nobody provides even within a commodity space. But you should set your you should set your goal to do something different. I mean, there's a lot of people, well, especially with software, I swear to gosh, I, I see so many of these businesses on various campuses, students and writing software. And, you know, you'd imagine that buying snacks is something that only happens at University of Texas or, or reselling books or I mean, what, I mean, there's millions of these things Mm -hmm. and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, what you need to do, the opportunity is where is the path less that hasn't been trodden. I mean, that's what you should look for. Mm -hmm. That's what that book is about. So I want to hear your take on, on business books. Why don't you recommend those? Because most of the people that write them have never started a business. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, you go to, listen to some of these conferences and so forth. And you're sitting listening to a guy or gal, but typically a guy that's a journalist. And uh, so they've collected, you know, it's a compilation of their experiences with other people that have done this. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot to be learned from. I mean, that's like me trying to like, if I was going to write a book about golf, I mean, I can tell you right now that I could probably write a go, I could get a book about golf written. I don't know Jack about golf. (laughs) I wouldn't read it, but I mean, that's what these poor, that's what these people do. And then it's like, that's ridiculous. So there's a couple, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting, for example, Bad Blood, that that's an interesting book because you get inside somebody's head that, and I think the way that she imagined that she was going to, to go to business. She had some very strange ideas about how the market works and how technology works and how engineering I mean, that poor woman doesn't know anything. And when you read it, you go, Oh my God, how could somebody think this way? But people thought that way. And people gave her what, $800 million to think like, that's craziness. And then like the, um, a great movie, I'm sure it's a book too, but the fry, where they had the island, they booked the island to... Oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah. fire bags. festival, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah fire festival. Ah, yeah, and and to watch that, and you imagine this is the way people that have never organized anything, mm-hmm. this is the way they think about things being organized, mm-hmm. which is all wrong, but it's fascinating, and it, and it tells you... I mean, it runs up a lot of red flags. But if you're watching it, you're, oh, my God, yes, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. So in a sense, I think you learn something. I mean, you can't just make fun of them. I mean, you there, there are things to be learned from situations like that. So one other question we ask all guests, because
0: part of the reason why we founded the show was to try to just help as many people as possible learn from people that have achieved something and, and have left a, you know, a lasting positive impact. And so one of the things I'm curious is just, is there things that you do every single day? It could be things you practice, routines you follow, tools that you use that help you show up as your best self each day. And, and do you have anything like that that you hold really near and dear and that you pay attention to every day?
1: I think there are two things, maybe one of them is exercise. I mean, I think it's important to, I mean, to give yourself goals, I mean, to set goals for yourself and actually be able to, to realize them because that's something in life that you can set all sorts of goals, but I mean, you're basically out in the middle of the of the ocean by yourself. And that's, you have to, you have to chart your own course. And so I think that it's interesting. If you do something where you can actually set a goal and attain the goal, mm-hmm. I think that's important. And so I do that every day. And I also like, I love to hike and I love to walk. And and the only reason that's really lazy, lazy is because I can think yep. and because it's very, very relaxing and, I mean, you're getting some exercise, but that's secondary, really. But I think the things that I do, that's, those are two things I think are the most important. I mean, obviously, you know, I have to look at a lot of different things. I read an awful lot, but sometimes I wonder if that's worth it. I get tired <laughs> of that after a while. You know, Some of this stuff that you read is ridiculous. So anyway, but I would say that those are two things. And that's something I think is, I mean, anybody can do it, but it's sort of, I don't know. It's sort of, it's, I, I guess if you were into yoga, it would be yoga, but it's something that you can set aside an hour and accomplish something that's easy to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's physical, yep. so it, it's, you can do it. And it ex- like exercises that. those discipline muscles on yeah, a daily basis. cool.
0: And then last question, just a
1: person or experience that you're really grateful for and why? <laughs> well, as I said, we moved around a lot when I was a kid and I've spent most of my working life working where I've been the boss. And so that's difficult, but there was, when I was in high school, as I said, I sold shoes. And there was a guy that was the manager of this little shoe store at Tom McCann's in Annandale, Virginia. And this guy, I mean, we were paid in cash, okay? This was a national chain, but I mean, it was, you know, this is in the late 60s. And so we got paid by signing the pay vouchers, and so we saw, you could see what everybody made. And the manager of the store, I this poor guy, I mean, he he made like $140 a week anyway. But every, and he was a grouchy old fart, but... You know, he, he had a lot of fans of people, kids that worked for him and every Thanksgiving he would throw a bash and, and it wasn't a potluck. I mean, he did, he and his wife did everything and they lived in this little burg of a town and they would put on this, you know, with the Turkey and the dressing and the pie and the whole thing. And this, this guy made no money. And, but it just amazed me that, that he did that. And that kids that had worked for him that were now that were then adults would come. I mean, that's where they came. They came to this shoe store and to partake of this lunch, this Thanksgiving lunch. I mean, even as a kid, you recognize that here was somebody that was doing something that he couldn't even afford to do. I mean, he could not afford to do, I mean, it's ridiculous. And he did it. I don't know. It just gave more than he Mm -hmm. got, and I think that 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 was always important to me. And so when we when we at the fan company every year, we had a Christmas party and every year at the end of the year, everybody get bonuses. And and when I sold the company, I wrote checks for 50 million dollars for the people that uh, worked for me. And I think that probably in terms of people that. I don't know. That made a difference to me. That made me think about what's important. I mean, I think that was a he was a big deal.
0: Yeah, it's an incredible story, and I see a lot of links. It feels like you clearly carried that spirit forward in, in what you've done and what you continue to Let's do. let hope in some fashion. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing to chat. I really appreciate it, Carrie. No, I really appreciate your time, Daniel. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. For show notes, including links to anything and everything mentioned in this episode, please go to outliers.fm. If you enjoyed this episode, sign up for my weekly newsletter. You'll be the first to hear about new episodes before they're released, and you'll get the best quotes, themes, and ideas from each episode in a weekly update I call Inside the Episode. To sign up for that, just go to outliers.fm slash newsletter. Just two more things before you take off. Number one, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in iTunes. My amazing team and I invest countless hours planning, researching, and editing each episode because we want all of them to be amazing. And we hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, please consider taking 30 seconds to leave a short review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Reviews are crucial in helping us get the best guess and helping more people find outliers. So if you have 30 seconds, please take a moment and leave a short review. Thank you so much. Number two, if you haven't already, sign up for my Friday Five newsletter. Each Friday, you'll get a short email where I share the coolest things that I've been using, loving, and pondering each week. Those include new products I'm trying, supplements I'm experimenting with, people I've been studying, books and articles I've been enjoying, and so much more. It's super short. It's filled with awesome and interesting stuff. And it's a great way to get inspired each week as you head into the weekend. To get access, go to friday5.email. That's F-R-I-D-A-Y-F-I-V-E.email. Thank you so much.